For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. Is the corporation as we know it going the way of the dodo bird? It's quite possible, given the shortening lifespan of corporations, the inability of many Fortune 500 companies to grow revenues, and the cry for brands to have a higher purpose than profits. In his new book, Built to Suck, Joe Jaffe argues that the entire business model is seriously flawed. And unless companies embrace digital disruption, talent resurrection, customer obsession, and corporate citizenship, they're doomed to fade into obsolescence. Joe joins me to explain why corporations are suffering from serious suckage and what they can do to move from survival to thrival. Joe, welcome to Beyond Profit. It's great to be, and I have to admit that while I was listening to you uh, reading that, I was like, wow, this sounds like an interesting podcast. I'd like to listen to it. And I'm like, wait a second, out-of-body experience. <laughs> I guess I'm the, I'm the guest. <laughs> You're the guest. So let's get right into it. Obviously, you believe the corporation has lost its way. What are some of the uh, contributing factors for this downward spiral? So, you know, it, it's interesting because Bob Leardis at the ANA very kindly offered his endorsement to the book. And um, he drew on something that I'd mentioned, which is if we looked at the corporation as, as a human being, this is a corporation that is elderly, that is, as I say in the book, I'm not an ageist unless we're talking about inanimate objects like corporations, but this is elderly, sickly, but more importantly, set in their ways, crotchety, stubborn, resistant to change. That was what Bob kind of, you know, connected with. What I had done as well is I'd said, if the corporation were a civilization, were an empire, like the mighty Ming dynasty or the Ottomans, the Romans, the Egyptians, you look back on history and, and you realize that every single civilization, at least a dynasty, one that had threatened threatened an empire to take over the world, to live forever. Every one of them fell by the wayside. Every one of them could not cheat the sands of time. And if we look at the corporation, how young is the corporation? 120 years, 150 years in its existing form. But we all recognize that the world has changed more in the last 10 or 15, 20 years than maybe in the 200 years before that. That's a David Verklin quote, more or less. He was referring to media and I quoted Verklin all the way back in, in my first book. So we are living through unprecedented times and the, corp the business model of big business is all about size, scale, economies of scale, efficiencies of scale. These days, you know, private equity, ingestion, you know, cost cutting, stripping out the guts of a company. But these companies, these multinational corporations, they made their money in establishing these efficiencies, these synergies that came from global reach and access and networks. But the corporation today is slowing down when the world is speeding up. Too political, too siloed, too bureaucratic, too risk averse. And the result is, is that the corporation is losing or, or has lost its competitive edge. Now, as you know, in the book, I, I talk about the corporate apocalypse. It's not just size, which is now a growth inhibitor, not a growth enabler, but it's also age, being a public company and culture. And it's funny because I've tied this, all of this back to what I know is the prime directive to the ANA and its members as well, which is growth. But I'm very clear what kind of growth I'm talking about. This is not what I call fake or bought or artificial growth. In other words, M&A, you know, enabled growth. This is natural, real, authentic, organic, customer-driven growth. And what I've been saying now in a lot of my presentations is, you know, the phrase grow up. It doesn't have to be about size anymore. It doesn't have to be about market share and dominance. It can be about growing out or growing up. Maybe that's a maturation. 
Maybe that's where purpose comes into play, where companies realize, wait a second, we can still make money, but we don't have to check doing good at the door. So for all those reasons, I actually, do, and, and, and ultimately when I talk about the business model of big business is flawed, we recognize that entire business models of industries now, not even companies, have been undermined and disintermediated by technology, wiped out. So technology it clearly is the primary driver. In addition to everything like changing tastes and culture and consumers and so on and so forth. But ultimately we're seeing entire business models that are being obliterated. And how do you, you know, if you're a JCPenney, if you're a company in the retail space, an anchor tenant in a mall, if you're a mall, if you're real estate, look at WeWork, you know, apparently, you know, real estate woes, I said in my book, WeWork is a real estate play. I guess what I didn't say is all real estate plays are going to be in trouble. And so that's what's happening. And, 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 I, and I say to people, look, don't shoot the messenger, but I have an important message. And that message clearly is, I almost feel like the end is near, like one of those, uh, I need one of those like, uh, like pickets. But, but the message is change. You know, change, disrupt yourself. If you don't put yourself out of business, someone else will. You can be damn sure about that. So you mentioned growth. Uh, growth comes through innovation. But you're concerned that companies aren't innovating enough. Why is that? Why have we sort of like moved away or, or drifted from that? Yeah, because I was surprised when I started my second company, Evolution. I was surprised how many marketers I would come across. And they would roll their eyes at the I word, at innovation. I was like, why are you rolling your eyes? Why are you... You know, for them it had become passe, it had become a cliche, it was an overused term. I'm like, well, but you're not doing it. You're not implementing, you're not really embracing this. For them, this phrase alone makes me turn into the Hulk. I get real mad. Test and learn. Marketers, they love the test and learn with a little N with a apostrophe. It's like a little gimmick, it's like a toy. The pilot program, but it's just lip service, it's superficial. There isn't the ability to really do what, and, and I wrote about this in Built to Suck, the four stages of evaluating a pilot program, what I call discontinue, it, because it's a typo, but it's not meant to be. You get a discount at failure if you do it early and you do it cheaply enough. So discontinue means don't do it again, obviously. Then there's pivot, which is change a variable. There's rinse and repeat, wait a second, that was, that was awesome, let's do it again. Let's bring in another brand, let's try another test or another variable or another approach. And then there's scale with success. And, and companies are not built to scale with success. It is just superficial. But there's another thing that's much more, you know, kind of insidious, uh, and that is the lack of continuity in corporations. So as you know, at the ANA Masters of Marketing, I, I presented at this keynote at the second stage, and I asked the entire room to stand up, and then I told them to sit down if they'd had even one of these in the past 12 months, a reorg, a restructure, a budget cut, a hiring freeze, you know, a CMO defection, a new agency. There's pretty much, you could count the people standing on two hands. So what does that say about, that's the problem. The problem is whenever we, we get ahead, whenever, we actually feel like there's some momentum, the new CMO comes aboard or the new agency comes in or everything is put on hold for the search or for the, the new CMO wants to go on their, I don't know, tour de force to like their learning tour. But invariably what happens? They basically kill all the projects that they inherited 
and they fire all the people associated with the outgoing CMO. It's a real crony approach and it really is that simple and we have to stop it. So I actually write about in the book and I say there should be a moratorium on change even though what I'm advocating is change. When a new CMO or CEO comes aboard, they should be prevented from changing anything for at least six months. I wonder what that would do to corporations. I think we would see real innovation because that momentum would be allowed to get to a point where even they wouldn't be able to kill it for personal subjective reasons. What else can companies do though to get that continuity? Continuity. You know, you're asking about continuity and ultimately, you know, I always say that if you want to uh, get the right answers, you have to ask the right questions. Are we even measuring the right things? We're not. You know, we, we're all talking about brand health, but we're measuring it based on, you know, what's your pulse right now as opposed to, you know, going for a proper MRI or, or, you know, to use that analogy. So we're not, you know, we're still measuring, you know, w one of the things that, that I've, I think this is kind of a provocative statement, maybe, maybe not, but our entire planning cycles should mirror our quarterly earnings uh, expectations. In other words, strategic planning should be three month increments at a time. Instead, what do all these companies do? They disappear into their little holes and their offsites round about this time and they go and plan and strategize some of them for five years with five-year plans. I don't even think that exists anymore. Three-year plans, or at least, you know, they're already, you know, look at the upfront, right? They're planning and buying for 2020 and 2021, when the reality is, you know, that we might get nuked, you know, in the next year by North Korea. It could happen, or the Russians. It could happen, you know? So it's like, we don't even know what the hell is going to happen tomorrow. Like, <laughs> the weather forecast can't even get it right anymore. And yet we're like, you know, we're like oracles in terms of our ability to plan for this predictable future. And we all, I mean, you guys are laughing now because I, I feel like it's just time like we start talking the truth now in this business. Like all of these, you know, kind of like dirty little secrets that we just sweep under the rug. I'm just trying to call it like it is. So let's talk about the truth then. So for companies that are stuck in the mud, how do they get to that sort of dream state that you talk about in your book? There is a, a piece of data which um, really, really, and I try to, I generally say at the beginning of my books that this is just a giant opinion piece. You know, you may not agree with me, even though I'm right. No, that's a Bob Goldfield line. But, you know, this is my opinion. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of thought leadership. I try not to get too bogged down in, in data. I, I saw a great cartoon from the marketoonist that said, you know, like the classic example of, I'm challenging you all, you know, to do, to do things that have never been done before, completely unprecedented original out the box. And with every recommendation, I need data and research to back it up and prove it. Who else has done that before? Yeah. So I think that when we start, so this was the piece of data, it was from the Henderson Institute. And it basically showed that companies that have had 20% or more total shareholder return decline over two or, cons two or more consecutive years, only 5% of them ever returned to their original levels. And, and that basically, I mean, when five out of 100 are never gonna get back. Now we're talking 20%, there's data with 10%, it's a little bit lower, but it's not that much lower. I, I think the thing is, you know, as Yogi once said, Vera, <laughs> You know, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. I say when the writing's on the wall, read it. And certainly there are some KPIs like market share, like profitability, like total shareholder return, but we have to recognize the rot and we have to recognize the indicators early. So that's the first point. You've got to be able to 
read that writing and do something about it mm -hmm. in order to kind of resist the urge to suck. The first part, of course, is it's inevitable. But as Jeff Bezos told his, you know, or at, at his all hands meeting, one day Amazon will fail. One day Amazon will go bankrupt. Your job is to delay that for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So dream state occurs, you know, these four pillars of growth, different spins on digital, on customer centricity, on employee engagement and on corporate social responsibility. But before that is maybe I would say the best chapter or the best, one of the best concepts that, that original concepts that I've ever come up with, which is heresy. You know, be the zealot, be the traitor in the midst, you know, be the, actually funnily enough, there's, there's precedent, the 10th man rule. Which has been, uh, which has become quite popular in a couple of movies, but it's it's something actually adopted by the Israeli government. Mm -hmm. It's just a contrarian approach that says, if everyone is in agreement, the tenth man will come up with a completely counterintuitive position and and a contradictory one. Whether it's devil's advocate and argue vehemently for that, but what if? What if we're wrong? So. In order to get there, the heresy, and I came up with 10, what if you fired yourself like Andy Grove did? What if you funded your competitor like kind of Microsoft and Apple have done and it's proved miraculous mm -hmm. for, for Microsoft, right? When you open up the closed or walled garden. What if you left money on the table? Look at what REI is doing for the fifth year running. They're saying they're closing on Black Friday. They're saying get outside. And now it's a different message. It's get out, it's opt outside but it's actually do something for the planet and for the environment. You can't fake authenticity. When you look at what REI and Patagonia are doing with respect to like really recognizing a corporate citizen is a company that is a model citizen, a global citizen that stands up and, 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 and says, look, we're just a shell, but it's the people inside our company and it's the people we serve and it's the environments in which we operate and guess what? No one's going to save this planet, definitely not government. So we may as well do it. And by the way, maybe consumers uh, that are a little bit more conscious and savvy and plugged in might just choose us because this is not a PR play, right? This is not lip service, but like attracts like. So that's how a company, a company has to be prepared to put itself out of business, to face its mortality, to be transparent and vulnerable and honest. And from there, I believe tremendous transformation and innovation can occur. But it starts from looking in the mirror and recognizing that what you see may be quite disastrous, but it is reality. You've touched on this, but there's been a lot of talk out there about the importance of having a brand purpose or having a higher meaning than profits. You touch on it in your book. Do you believe it is the great differentiator today for companies? Or do you feel it's a start? Not at all, because I mean, I, my message is if you are trying to discover your purpose, you are so far gone and so lost. And even if you miraculously discover this magic purpose floating in a beautiful glittery ball in front of you, are you truly going to sell that through and stick with it and be able to embed that deeply and intimately into your culture? I was talking to Jim Stengel about this, you know, and I think his point, which is a very, very valid one, which is coming up with a purpose is easy. Implementing it is damn hard. So my, but my argument is don't discover your purpose, rediscover it. You forgot your purpose. You need to remember your purpose. Your purpose existed right at the beginning. Go back to day one. Go back to your founders. You know, if Sam Walton walked up and down the aisles and, and spoke to people, figure out a way to do that, for example. I'm not saying Walmart doesn't have a purpose, but I'm saying that's 
an example. When we think about how many of these companies, I always say Hewlett, Packard, Procter Gamble, these were real people. These were people that were hungry, scrappy entrepreneurs. And how do we get that? And I was actually very impressed and influenced by a presentation at last year's ANA Masters of Marketing from Denny's. CMO basically said that ex pretty much what I was saying now, which is we were about to go down the path and overblown consultancy millions of dollars to take a year and a half to discover a purpose. And then we found this like, you know, I guess it was a slide or an old presentation or a dusty, musty, cobwebby painting. One of the first Denny's store that says, we love to feed people. It was a quote from their founder that said, we love to feed people. That was their purpose. Really loving to feed people, taking joy in being able to just see their joy over food. And who doesn't, you know, it's based on the truism, right? Do, do you live to eat or do you eat to live? Mm -hmm. Well, people who live to eat, those are probably a good fit with Denny's. And so that's my point. I don't have any problem with purpose. But I just think, you know, like if we're, if it's the flavor of the month and if it's being looked at so super tactically and it isn't based on the past, it's going to be short-lived. And it's why also I take a pot shot as also this corporate social responsibility. You know, don't say drink responsibly if you're a beer brand. Bring that to life. Demonstrate. Say, we don't want you as a customer if you're going to drink and drive. Your money's no good to us. Get off the road mm -hmm. and get, and, and, Go buy our competitor, but don't buy us. To be able to actually, that's one of the heresies, right? Turning your back on your customer. And then I talk about in the book, I give an example. I just went a little rogue. I just completed my survival planning canvas, which is a proprietary IP framework that I came up with. And I say proprietary and IP, but people can download it for free. So there you go. I'm sticking my tongue out at you, Blair, you know, um, rather than the closed walled garden, the black box. But I did it for them. I said, well, here's an example that shows how if I'm, you know, and it could be, you know, it could be any brand. It's not just them. I just chose them because, you know, they're America's brand. But I basically said, here's an example where they could go buy a ride sharing company and they could partner with a car and come up with a breathalyzer immobilizer. So now using face ID and biometrics, like clear, guess what? You're not cleared to drive. You're over the limit. Your car won't start. But because you're a subscriber to Budweiser Lifestyle, which is $49.99 a month, someone's going to come and pick you up and drive you home in your car. Now that's innovation. And that moves them from being a beer company to something completely different and very cool. And oh, by the way, that's bringing their corporate social responsibility and purpose in this case, to life. So that is what I want to see more companies doing. And every company is capable of doing that. I mean, I did it for them for free, you know, but every company is smart people that work for them and work for their agencies that are more than capable of coming up with those kinds of ideas. The key is, okay, you've come up with these ideas. Now, how do you get the funding and secure the support from senior management, from the board, and the funding to go and implement that. Seems to me what you're suggesting is that these companies that are quote unquote built to suck or currently suck, they lost their way because they got away from their purpose, their true identity at some point along the continuum. That is one of the reasons for sure. I mean, the, the other reasons could all be, you know, tracked back to the four horsemen who are indiscriminate in the sense that it applies to every company, every old, large, public company. But then the four pillars also kind of have their uh, corollaries or their inverse corollaries. When you look at, you know, digital disruption, today digital has become boring. Digital started to decline now. We saw the first IB numbers showing that 
there was some decline for the first time. So digital has become, digital disruption says digital must disrupt. We need to disrupt digital. So if you went back to these companies and we just touched on the corporate citizenship, what we now need to do is look at the way they treat customers, look at how much a la my third book, Flip the Funnel, look at how much they invest in retention versus acquisition. That will tell you everything you need to know. Look at how they treat their people and look at how they're using digital, which goes back to our discussion on innovation. So you can almost create four proxies, you know, in terms of what their innovation quotient is, what their employee engagement quotient is, you know, what their customer obsession quotient is, and, and what their CSR or purpose quotient is. And chances are they're going to score incredibly poorly across multiple of those pillars. So is corporate citizenship sort of a next step up from purpose, would you say, you know, or is it an ancillary type of thing? I'm going to say yes, like customer obsession is, you know, in fact, I just keynoted at a customer experience event and I made them change their name, the customer obsession event. They mocked up a whole thing for me, which was kind of cute. Um, but I basically said there, so in many cases, I'm actually like really playing with words like digital disruption versus disrupting digital with respect to customer Customer obsession, I'm saying we need to stop talking about no more customer service or customer experience or even customer centricity. It's now obsession. And so with corporate citizenship, yes, I do believe there is a higher order at this point than purpose or CSR. I think corporate citizenship is. It's a, it's a loftier, more holistic and braver and bolder approach that actually says we and the people that live inside the shell we need to be model citizens. We need to be public servants. We need to step up when governments do not and cannot. We need to recognize that our planet indeed is in trouble. And when I say our planet is in trouble, I'm not just talking you know, about fixing the ozone layer or blows from the past. I'm talking about civility. I'm talking about figuring out how we come together in this country. There's a lot of stuff that ultimately we need to come together in order to move forward. I'm not going to break out into a rendition of Kumbaya right now. But I actually think, you know, by the way, all four of these pillars are motivators for customers and prospects to choose them. You want to choose a company that shares your values and your ideals. In a world of glass door, you know, where we can't hide behind opacity anymore. We can't come up with misleading advertising. I mean, just look at Juul, which is the smoking industry, you know, industry part two with advertising. We will be exposed for the lies we tell, for the promises that we break or don't keep, and for our inability to deliver. And so I say get out in front of all of that and, and recognize, by the way, that as they often say, it's not just good, it's not just common sense, it's good business sense. This is obvious what I'm talking about. And that's why I think when we go back to those four pillars, each one of them in their own right could and should and would be a reason why a customer says, I'm going to choose this company. You know, I actually sat down with one of my role models and, and idols, uh, Professor Philip Kotler. And I said to him, you know, I basically bastardized your four Ps all the way back in uh, my second book, Enjoying the Conversation, where I came up with the six Cs. I think it was content, community, commerce, context, customization, and conversation. Uh, and of course, like the fifth P was people or the sixth, the seventh C was, was the customer. But anyway, he looked at me and I was like, it's about time, <laughs> you know, it's about some, time someone took my model and improved and, and, you know, and, and riffed on it or hacked it or improved. So like we have to like really kind of get a little bit more advanced now and realize that people are not going to choose a brand 
because of their advertising or their P of promotion. I've been lecturing on this for 17 years that the four P's are commoditized and they are ubiquitous and pervasive and perfect pricing and distribution and products are, are glorified commodities. And that's why I say to marketers, you should pay a lot of attention really, you know, everyone's obsessed with Amazon right now and how Am the, the Amazon, you know, the kind of the white labeling, the Amazon white labeling of everything. You know, Elizabeth Warren's going to do her best to take care of that. But for everybody else, we should be really worried about Brandless, about a company called Brandless that sells one of every product in the world, only one for $3. And when asked, how, how is it possible that you charge $3 for a toothbrush versus baking soda versus, you know, washing detergent. And they said, because we've eliminated the brand tech, the costs associated with branding and brand building and advertising. And by eliminating all of that fluff, that cost, taking that out, we can actually average out all of these products. And that says, you know what, when our profession is being marginalized and, and diminished and spoken about as a tax, we're in trouble. So that's why I think like, like this is the time now for marketers to stand up and step up and say, we're going to take action. You know, that's, and this message, and that's why I'm so glad I'm doing this podcast because, you know, I don't want this message for the second stage. I'm going to go to Bob now and say, I need to be on that stage in front of 3000 marketers. And it's not, you know, I'll be the messenger. I'll stick my neck out. I don't care if it gets chopped off. As Nick Bryan once said to me, he said, there are two types of people in the world. There are pioneers and settlers. He said, the pioneers get shot. And the settlers take the land. And he said, you, my boy, are a pioneer. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for nothing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't mind. I, I just want us to like, I w we need to feel that sense of urgency. Because I really do feel, I mean, I don't know if you guys disagree, if you disagree with me, but I do feel like, right, like I feel that uneasiness in, in a sense where our marketing profession, I feel really is in trouble. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. What is your, what are your true feelings about current state of marketing and advertising? You're a straight shooter. Let's, let's, let's hear what you have to say. Well, clearly it sucks. You know, I mean, in one word, suck, you know, in two words, sucks eggs. No, I think, you know, as I said in my, in my keynote, there's a record number of CMOs that have left their post or, or been asked to leave this year. And the really troubling part is that they're not being, in some cases, in many cases, they're not being replaced. So if you ever wanted proof that what you do is really devalued or, or not valued, it's the fact that no one replaces you when you leave. The CMO of McDonald's not being replaced, that's, that's crazy. They've done some great marketing, you know, truth be told. So I think that shows you, now in some cases, they're being replaced with a chief growth officer, but we haven't attached ourselves as a profession to the right KPIs. Um, and that one of that Uber KPI is, as we've discussed several times, growth, but not just size growth, not just quant growth, qual growth as well. And no one is doing that. No one is actually talking about a different kind of health and wellness associated with marketing, marketers, and recognizing that marketing can save the corporation. I don't think any other function actually has the capability or the potential to save the corporation. It's not going to come from ops, right? It's not going to come from finance. Where's it going to come from? From new product development? But that can come from customers when you bring them into the R&D, the whole innovation engine, when you voice of the customer. So it's marketing and only marketing. I always cite um, 
a white paper by Regis McKenna. I think he wrote it in, he wrote a long time ago, maybe 73, maybe, maybe I just made that number up. And he said, marketing is everything. Everything that touches your customer, and I would say internal and external customer, so employee and customer, everything that touches them directly or indirectly should be the responsibility and owned by marketing. And marketing should have input and marketing should sign off. And right now, Let's be honest, it's the exact opposite of that. So that mount, that may be an impossible summit, you know, to, to get to and overcome. But that's, to me, that's what we've got to, you know, and maybe growth is our Sherpa, you know, to help us up this treacherous apex. But that's what we've got to do. Well, do you think being a more purposeful company and having the um, corporate citizenship leadership like you're talking about, would that make a big difference, do you feel? I think, again, all four of these pillars, I think, are inextricably linked to one another. Mm -hmm. But I, I talk about in the book about a concept called mirror and glass. And I basically say that, you know, today marketing is a mirror. It's all about fake, it's all about an image or projection or a reflection. But that reflection has been retouched as well. So it's all about project, but it's opaque. A mirror is opaque. And the whole concept of image advertising, right? All of that is based on the past. The glass approach goes back to the idea of glass door, of full transparency. Um, of full disclosure, radical candor. The fact that when you go to a restaurant today, all of these open kitchens, you can see the food being prepared in front of you. Um, even, even shows like Hell's Kitchen, all these cooking shows where you can actually see what goes on. That's where the world is heading or, or, or is already. That's what stakeholders require. All stakeholders, right? And go back to the, uh, the business roundtable that just said the purpose, the purpose of a corporation is to serve all stakeholders, multiple constituents, not just those greedy, grubby, you know, paws on Wall Street, which goes back to the horseman of being a public company. So emphatically, the answer to your question, when you actually look and define purpose more broadly, not just in terms of the environment and the planet, but even just the ability to serve and satisfy all stakeholders, you know, case in point was uh, Abigail Disney. I think I got a name. I think it's Abigail, not, yeah, Abigail Disney, one of the heiresses to Disney, who, you know, really came out and, and criticized Disney's chairman, Bob Iger, and basically said, you could, out of your own bonus this year, give every single employee at the parks at Disney World, Disneyland, every single one of them, a 15% pay rise. And you could fund that out of your bonus and still you would walk out with a bonus of like $24 million. So there's something wrong with, with the corporation. You know, it, and it's obviously very interesting, even what's going on in this country right now. You know, it's relevant, the, the marketing of politics, where you're having billionaires defending themselves going, why are we being knocked for being rich, you know, or for being, you know, successful? And by the way, we've hired lots of people and, and done good in the process as well. And the problem is, and look, I'm not taking sides here. I'm not at all. I'm just saying the cost structures are still out of whack when, when too many people at the top in corporations make too much money. And on top of that, you know, the old saying, people rise to the level of their own incompetence. The incompetent ones leave with this amazing parachute. The money just falls out of the sky. And they leave with, with tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for being, I don't know if this is, you know, family friendly, but being absolute assholes. And so, like, how do we change that? Is that purpose? Yeah, it is. Put all of this together, and, and, and I think you have a formula 
for survive and thrive. You have a formula for growth that actually says we can make changes, but who's going to make the first move? Who's going to stick their neck out? Who's really going to kind of have that Jerry Maguire moment? And the reality is most will be too afraid. Most will count down the days to their retirement. Most will get headhunted and end up in another company anyway. And the result, the real victim is the corporation. The corporation and Barney's, Payless, Sears, like a whole bunch of companies, Thomas Cook, you know, the company fails because of the inability of the leadership of that company leading up to that failure to have really taken responsibility and ownership. You know, and, and I stand behind that comment. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. You're very welcome. And next time I'll tell you what I really feel. He's Joe Jaffe, author of Built to Suck. Purchase the book, visit builttosuck.com. Also, be sure to visit josephjaffe.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.